Lord, Lord Jesus, we, we thank and praise you that as we have entered into this place, uh, you were already here before we came. And you go before us into wherever it is that you are leading us as we go about our week. But right now we have set this time aside to, to learn more about you and your presence in and through and with us. And, and we do so now by opening up your word. We pray that it speaks to us. And we pray, God, that it gives us hope, especially in the midst of moments of depression and despair, moments where we cannot see the light on the horizon. We trust that you are there, and we pray that you help us to trust in that truth and find comfort in that truth as we open up your word and find you in it. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, several years ago, we did, a, we did a sermon series. Some of you might remember. It was titled, The Bible Doesn't Say That. Does anybody remember that? It was, it was a good, good series because it gave us a chance to cover these common ideas and phrases that oftentimes people think the Bible says, but they actually don't originate in the Bible at all. For example, how many of you, just show of hands, have ever heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Right? We've all heard that. And I did a little research during that series, and I found that that is a phrase that actually the majority of Christians in the United States, it's unique to our country, not only do we believe that it is a biblical principle, but there's a good number of Christians that believe that it's one of the Ten Commandments. And I'm, I, I pause to hear you laugh, okay? I'm glad because those of you laughing know that it's not. And so, so I went down this whole like rabbit trail to figure out, well, where does it come from? And it was written in a book that was written in 1698 called Discourses Concerning Government. And it was written by the author Algernon Sidney. And if you learn about his faith, he was not even a Christian in the orthodox sense of the word. He didn't believe in public worship and all sorts of different things. Certainly believed and subscribed to some of the philosophies. But he, he would not be what you would define as a follower of Christ today. And yet, many Christians, and even non-Christians, 81% by one poll, believe that this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is found in the Bible. And so as we get into it today, we're in our, our, our sixth week in this series we're calling Emotional Faith, and we're exploring the connection between our emotions and our faith. What, how we feel and how we respond to the world around us tells us about ourselves and about God and about our relationship with him. And today we're going to tackle a particularly difficult, but also an all too relatable topic, and that is despair or depression. And, and I want to say at the onset that we, we obviously, we cannot get into all of the particulars of, of mental illness in a sermon. And I, I do hope, though, that all of us, no matter how we come to this topic of depression and despair, that, that we will find hope in this. Whether it's a circumstantial place you find because of what you're going through in life, whether it's a chemical imbalance or some other physiological reason, my prayer is that as we get into God's word, for all of us, wherever we are, we will find hope. Because the problem is with the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is, is that it actually doesn't help because it suggests that God isn't there when we can't help ourselves. And, and the truth is, that is exactly what God is in the business of doing. God wants to be with us when we have nowhere else to turn. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 25, You, God, 
have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. God helps those who help themselves is wrong. God helps those who can't help themselves when they turn to him. And that's why when we open up our Bibles, we find example after example of people who cannot help themselves, imperfect saints who have gone before us, who have cried out to God about how they feel because they know that God is a refuge for the poor and the needy and a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. And one of these places, maybe the place that comes to your mind most frequently and easily as we're going to talk about despair is is our reading today from the book of Job. And so um, as I ask you to open it up, I want you to be open to chapter 1 and chapter 30 because we're going to spend some time in both. And if you don't know the story of Job, it is a fascinating story. It's a perplexing story. And it's a very applicable story about a man named Job. He was a man of great faith. And it tells of his experience with unexplainable human suffering. Not explainable human suffering, not circumstances where we understand why somebody's going through something, but this is unexplainable human suffering. And we go to the beginning because at the beginning, the author kind of peels back the curtain between what we can see and what we cannot see in the spiritual realm. And there's this grand conversation that takes place between the Lord and this fallen angel that's known as the prosecutor or the adversary. You know him as Satan. And so the Lord and Satan are having this conversation, and there's a purpose behind us seeing what this conversation is about. And it's, it's that the author wants to establish some parameters about the story before we interpret the circumstances of Job's life. There's some things we need to know about what's going on in the world and what's going on in Job's life before we begin to learn exactly what he goes through. And so so we're going to kind of walk through those. Let's start with chapter 1, verse 6. It says, One day when the angel came to, angels came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And so we stop right there because this is setting the tone. This is the setting for the rest of the story. This adversary, Satan, has has been roaming throughout the earth. This is what he does. All day, every day, day and night, he roams throughout the earth. In the New Testament, um, the disciple Peter references this idea when he calls Satan in 1 Peter 5 uh, a hungry lion seeking out those whom he will devour. And, And this is not a phenomenon that began with Job. It's actually what has always been since the very beginning when sin first entered the world. And while you and I can't see it necessarily, it's still a part of our reality today, isn't it? I mean, isn't there certain moments, certain moments where you're just filled with joy and hope, but there's other moments where you can't describe it, you can't explain it, but there's this unexplainable thing happening under the undercurrent. There's this evil that's taking place in our time, in our midst. This is what is being described in the book of Job. Same like today, that was present then. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on the earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
And so the second thing we learn, first thing we learn is evil is hovering over the face of the earth. The second thing that we learn is, is that, is that um, Job is blameless and upright. And you might skip over that, except you shouldn't, because how often do we buy into the lie when we see unexplainable suffering in someone's life or in our own life, how often do we jump to the conclusion it must be because that person did something wrong? Or it must be because I did something wrong that somehow God is punishing me or is punishing that other person. And so the author of Job is going to great lengths to make sure you know that in this particular story, that is not what is happening here. Job is blameless. He is upright. It doesn't mean he's perfect, but when God describes you that way, when God looks at the whole earth and says, take a look at that guy, he's faithful, he loves me, you know that Job is in a good position with the Lord. God is pleased with Job. He is not being smited. He is not being punished. And nothing that is about to happen to him in his life is because of something that he did wrong. And so that's what we learned. Verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge of protection around him? This is what Satan is saying to God. Like, God, haven't you protected him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he surely will curse you to your face. And so you've got evil that is, is, is everywhere, covering over the face of the earth, right? Job has done nothing wrong. And now we learn that God has actually blessed Job and his circumstances in the past. And the Lord does not argue with Job about the, or argue with Satan about this fact. And so, so we know that God has blessed him beyond measure. And it's not unlike what, what we experience, right? Like, like, like we can look back on our own lives and just say, only God, right? Right? Like my, my wife, Alyssa, and I, we were just talking about this just yesterday. And, and, and most of you have been around for a while. You know, we've got five kids, and our youngest is five months old. And um, he, he was born to us biologically. God has grown our family through adoption and foster care and all sorts of different ways. But it's been 10 years since we had a biological child, and we were not planning on having a biological child. And, 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 and we know how this works. And, and it's been five months, and it's been a little crazy. My wife got very sick when she had our older boys. She got very sick when she had Grayson, our youngest. And yesterday, we were just talking. We were just looking at him. We were just holding him. We were just thinking, man, what a blessing. <laughs> Like, what a gift. Like, we, it's a gift that we didn't expect. That we, 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 we just, what a, what a gift of God's grace that we get to be parents. Every one of our children is a gift. And, and we were looking at him and just thinking about the gift of this season. Job can look back on his life. And everything in his life, he can say the same thing. This is not as if God is like, given him the lottery ticket, right? This is that God has given him what God has given so many of us. He's looking back and saying only God could be responsible. God has given him family and a, a successful business and a wonderful, fulfilling life. And all of it is a blessing from God, just like all of our blessings come from God as well. And so Satan suggests here that if God takes all of it away, then Job will lose his faith. Job will lose his faith. And so here's how God responds. Verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything that Job has is in your power now, Satan. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
And the last thing that we learn here is that just as God has blessed Job in the past, he is not going to stop protecting Job in the future. Satan asked God to strike everything that Job has ever been blessed with, to take away his blessings. And I want you to notice that that the Lord doesn't answer by saying yes. He doesn't say that he's going to take away his blessings, but he also doesn't stop Satan from striking many of the blessings that Job has been given as well. And at the same time, if you look at this, you'll see that the Lord is limiting Satan. And he is limiting Satan's ability. He is saying, do not lay a finger on him. Commentators from the time this has been written have described this as God holding Satan on a leash. That that he is a ravaging dog, and yet God is holding him on a leash. He is going to allow for this massive storm to surround Job, but God is not going to be the one that starts the storm, and he is not going to let the storm overtake the faithful man of God that he clearly, deeply loves. And all of this is really important for us to understand before we get into seeing just how brutal Job's life is about to become. And what we're about to see is that sometimes the pain that we experience in life can be more painful than it might feel like losing our life would be itself. Life can be so hard. And and we don't have time to read through the whole thing. So let me just summarize to you what happens to Job after this conversation. His business and his family are overcome by calamity. War breaks out, his livestock, his servants are destroyed by a fire, his homestead is raided. And, and it's interesting, his, Job doesn't actually say a word until a freak accident happens and it takes the life of his own children. And it's at that moment that finally he cries out to God and he rips off his shirt and he wants to die. And, and, and he goes on, if you don't know the story of Job, to lose everything. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. His closest friends come to his aid. But then they end up doing the same thing that we often do. When we see somebody who we can't explain their circumstances, they try to explain their circumstances. And that's what happens in the friends of Job. They try to come up with answers. Job must have done something wrong. God must be angry. There must not be enough faith in Job's life. And God, even Job's wife, gets on that train. And it leaves Job having lost everything and suffering with no one. And that's the story of Job. And the reason that the story of Job is in our Bibles is that it's also your story. And it's also my story. We, we all become Job at different points in our life, don't we? Moments where we look back at the blessings of our life, saying only God could have done that for me, but we look back on them from a moment of despair, having lost everything for no apparent reason. We are all Job. If you have not been Job, you will be Job at some point in your life, and so will I there's a, there's a story, uh, an author, her name is Michelle Kashat. I, I stumbled upon her story because she was the host of a podcast that I listened to some years ago. And I was, it was really just hearing the bits and pieces. I ended up reading her life story, and it was just very fascinating. She's a woman of faith. She describes her life as a little messy, blended family. Um, they started parenting all over again. They had older children that were just about to leave the house, and then through some circumstances ended up adopting adopting younger children and starting all over again. And then she experienced multiple bouts of an aggressive form of cancer. 
and this cancer ended up attacking her throat and ended up the second time around, it, she lost a good portion of her tongue. And remember, I heard about her because she was the host of a podcast. Her job was using her voice, was speaking, and it's the very thing that this cancer threatened to take away. And she's a woman of faith, and so she writes extensively about her own experience with pain and suffering. And, and I came across this that she wrote recently, and I thought it was fitting. She said, and I'm going to read it twice. It's, there's a lot here. She said, pain taught me that life and faith are far more complex than we give them credit for. And to stuff and oversimplify not only exasperates the suffering of those in the middle of crisis, but it keeps us in a place of spiritual isolation and maturity. Let me say that again. Pain taught me that life and faith are far more complex than we give them credit for. And to stuff and oversimplify not only exasperates the suffering of those in the middle of crisis, but it keeps us in a place of spiritual isolation and immaturity. And so we come back to the story of Job, and we see that Job... The story of Job does not simplify suffering. It doesn't simplify the story because God loves Job and loves us too much to, in Michelle's words, too much to exasperate the suffering. The reality is it's complicated, right? Life is complicated. And what we see here is that there are spiritual forces at play in our pain, that life is hard, that as Job himself would say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And that is exactly what has taken place. And it's in the pit of despair that Job cries out in the words of our reading. And this is just a portion, but it is arguably at his lowest of lows. This is the way Job cries out to God and cries out of his own heart to no one who is anymore listening to him. Verse 16, he says, And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. You read that and you think, oh, that sounds nice. He says, God is like clothing that binds me like the neck of my garments. It's as if God's presence itself is choking me. God is throwing me. Is this how he feels? God is throwing me into the mud and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you don't answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. And with the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and you drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know that you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living when they're not living anymore. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept? For those in trouble, has not my soul grieved the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and I cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. 
My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the sound of wailing. This is despair. Job's life is literally ebbing away. He hurts. He's lost everything. He doesn't sleep, right? He's become a companion of the owls. He prays, and he does not hear God answer him. Have you ever prayed, and you didn't hear God answer you? As if God has abandoned you? He feels like more than that. It feels like God must be the one actually attacking him, and it's not fair. And remember what we learned at the beginning. It's really important for you to know that it's not the case. God is not the one who's doing this. That does not mean it does not feel like it. Job has helped others, but in his own moment of need, he sees no help for himself. He describes his state of being as being someone who has been toasted under the hot Middle Eastern sun, except not in, in, in the sense that his burns are on his skin, though he has those too, but he says his soul has been scorched. That's how painful life feels Job. I was thinking about our, our older boys, Jake and Evan, they've got a Lego table in their bedroom. We made sure there was a corner in their bedroom. They're in the basement, and we've got five kids. We had to make room, and so that's where they are, and we made sure they had a place for their Legos, and I love, I love that, that they have Legos, thousands of Legos, and it's, it's just overflowing with half-finished creations and lots of pieces, and, and, and I, I love it except for at night. Because every night I go down there to say goodnight to them, and I'm usually ready to go to bed myself, and so I'm barefooted, and I walk by that Lego table. Parents are smiling. And it hardly ever fails that I step on a Lego. (laughs) And if anyone has ever stepped on a Lego with bare feet, you know what I'm talking about. Inappropriate words that you didn't even know you knew (laughs) come flying from your lips... (laughs) And you, you, you are so caught up in the pain that it literally feels as if cutting off your toes with a knife would be less painful than stepping on a Lego. I mean, I really believe that God created the creative minds behind Legos, but when you talk about the evil of Satan hovering over, they must have been hovering over the engineers when they came up with the sharp edges. That's all Satan right there in those blocks. Now, when you step on a Lego... Or when you stub your toe, if you've never had the, the opportunity, what happens is, is you suddenly forget everything that's going on, right? Like, like you're not thinking of anything because the pain is, is so painful that it draws all of your attention to your foot and you can't think about anything else. It just hurts. And, and I, share, I share, it's a little comic, comic relief, right? But it's also true of other pain. The same phenomenon is true in the pain of despair, in the pain of depression. And it's the pain that Job is feeling right now as he speaks. He cannot see past his own anguish. And pain does that. Pain draws us in, it holds us hostage. And then it's so evil, it covers our eyes that we might not see that there is still hope on the horizon. 
was looking in the Gospels, and I, I, I never knew this before. Do you, do you know how many times in the four Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, do you know how many times it's recorded that Jesus cried? Does anybody know? I'm glad, I'm glad that you don't, because I didn't know either. Two times. Only two times. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus only cried twice. I'm sure he cried as a baby. I'm sure there's other times he cried. But there's only two stories, distinct stories, in the Gospels where he cried. And and that tells us that those examples must be significant. And so I had to find them. The first one is in John chapter 11. You may know the story. Jesus' friend Lazarus died. And he was really good friends with Lazarus and his two sisters, and they sent word to Jesus that he was sick. And they wanted him to come and heal him, but he didn't come fast enough. And Lazarus died, and it's the shortest verse in in most English translations. He's standing outside the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus, and it says this in John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus, say it with me, wept. Jesus wept. Shortest English verse in the Bible. So that's the first one. The second time that Jesus cried, and it's recorded as chronologically later in Luke chapter 19, it's Palm Sunday, and he's approaching the cross, and Jesus cries over the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 41. It says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And he said, even you, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But it is now hidden from your eyes. And so many of us are familiar with these two stories, right? And my question is then, what is it that exactly is making Jesus cry in both? What, why is he crying? And I look at Lazarus' case, and it's not over his friend's death. He's not crying over his physical death, at least not the way that we cry when our loved one dies. And we know that because just days before, he actually told the disciples, this is not going to lead to Lazarus' death. He knew it wasn't going to. And then immediately after he cries, he prays to the Father, and he says, I always believed that you were going to save him, but I'm here to to, to pray and, and to do what I'm about to do so that these people might believe. He always knew what was about to happen. And then, of course, the best Sunday school story ever happens, right? God raises Lazarus from the dead. He comes out like a walking zombie still in those death clothes, and he's alive. And so so Lazarus can't be crying over his physical death the way that that you and I would cry over a physical death because he knew that this was about to happen. And then in the case of Jerusalem, Jesus had just finished, if you don't know the story of Palm Sunday, he's approached the city on a donkey and people are laying their coats down and they're waving palm branches and they're screaming, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is the day Jesus is going to become the king. And yet just days later, another crowd is going to gather and they're going to shout something very different. They're going to shout, crucify him. And Jesus is going to be sent to a cross and he's going to be killed and yet I don't think Jesus is crying over his own death here either because the gospels say he resolutely went to Jerusalem and he's looking over Jerusalem and I think that the reason Jesus is crying there and I think the reason that Jesus is crying over Lazarus is because the very people that he came to save had lost their hope In the case of Lazarus, Martha and Mary asked Jesus to come and save their brother, but they didn't understand what he had come to do, and so they lost their hope. And in the case of Jerusalem, they had put their hope in the wrong thing. 
See, when, when Martha and Mary had called for Jesus to come, they lost their grip on hope because they did not understand that their Lord came to do more than just heal the sick. He came to raise the dead. And in the case of Jerusalem, the religious leaders and the people in power and the crowds in the city struggled to understand that Jesus came to do more than just be an earthly king that would bring temporary hope through force to a life that for all of us will someday end. See, Jesus came to bring life after death itself. He came to destroy the very adversary so that one day he will not hover over the earth again, causing pain and destruction everywhere he goes. And in coming to do that, he came to invite all who believe and call upon his name to find hope and riches in him that will last forever. But in the case of the loved ones of Lazarus and in the case of all those in Jerusalem, they were in pain. And in their pain, they could not see the hope. And I get that. Because when I'm in pain, I don't always see the hope either. It's like stubbing your toe. You just can't think of anything past the pain. And so Jesus weeps. He cries over that reality in a people that he loves. Which brings us to the end of the story of Job. How does, how does the story end? Well, God eventually answers Job. He answers this prayer from the pit of destruction. It's not with all of the answers to Job's questions. He actually directly addresses that. How can he possibly understand everything that's going on? Because pain is complicated. Life is complicated. And God, out of his love, doesn't want to, in the words of Michelle Kashat, does not want to exasperate the suffering. And so God does not try to explain the unexplainable. But in the end, if you read through the rest of Job, you'll find Job ends up receiving restoration. Many times what he has lost, he has given back. Family and wealth, everything is restored many times beyond, which is great. It's like he goes through all of this and then he wins the lottery. But then you also think, man, it doesn't make the pain he experienced any less either, does it? Remember, the first time he cried out, he lost his own children. You can't replace kids. You can't replace a spouse who's passed away. You can't replace people. You can't replace the lost days and months in years of despair, which teaches us that faith in God when we're in despair, often it doesn't take away the pain in that particular moment. It doesn't take away the pain, and I wish it did. It will eventually, and I'm sorry to say that it doesn't, but sometimes our faith doesn't take us out of that pit of despair in the timeline that we wish it will. But the faith of Job that we learn in this story and so many other places, it is that God will do something better. Faith adds something to our pain. When we are in despair, when we are engulfed in our agony, when we are uh, without the ability to see past the moment in time that, that we are living in right now, when you're in that moment, you know you, God is not finished yet. The gospel adds hope. And it's a hope that is not dependent 
on whether you feel hopeful or not. God's hope goes beyond our feelings. By the grace of God, God's hope is that his promise is to add hope to the most hopeless situations, even when, especially when, you cannot see past the darkness. He did it for Job. He did it for Lazarus. He had been, he had been dead for days. His body already smelled, and he did it in Jerusalem. When Jesus died on the cross and three days later rose from the grave and he did it so that he could do it for you and so that he could do it for me. And the very brother of Jesus would say as much when he writes in James chapter 5, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Our faith reminds us that while our circumstances are painful, while our emotions are fleeting and our understanding is limited, our hope is eternal. And so I want to I invite you now just in, into a moment of prayer, and then we're going to listen. We're going to watch a short video. It's going to just put up on the screen some truth. And so would you just join me now as we pray? Lord Jesus, we come before you as people who have more in common with Job than we might realize. Lord, I come before you with those in this room right now who can all too easily relate to the pit of despair that your faithful servant Job has found himself in. And like stubbing your toe, when we find ourselves in that place, oftentimes we cannot see past the pit of our own despair. We cannot see the hope on the horizon. And so, God, I just pray that you would bring that moment to our surface. And for those of us whose lives are going particularly well, as we look back at our blessings and say, only God, may we know that just as you have given us the very breath that we breathe and every blessing that we have ever and and will ever encounter in our life, that you are with us in our moments of darkness, even when, especially when we cannot feel them that you are with us, holding us close, that we are abiding in you as you abide with us, giving us strength to hold on to your hope until we see its truth come, just like it did for Job and just like it will for us when you come back again. Help us to experience that truth. Help that truth to bring us comfort in the midst of our pain. In Jesus' name we pray.